In the name of the one true and living God, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. I'm always interested and sometimes puzzled by the choice of readings offered us on a Sunday. And like a prospective shopper at the vegetable stand at the market, I like to cast my eye over what's offered for my meditation. Then I'll choose from the readings a few fine things to take and contemplate and enjoy. So I'll begin by looking at the psalm we prayed together. Today's psalm gives a catalog of ways to live a worthy life. Walk blamelessly before the Lord and do what is right. Keep yourself from slandering and defaming others, doing dirt to your friends. Speak the truth from your mouth and don't lend money on interest or take bribes. If you do these things, as another psalm puts it, think of yourself as a tree planted by the riverside with your good actions and attitudes watered by the river of righteousness. Your leaves won't wilt, nor will your goodness wither. For once, this looks like a passage from scripture that's easy to follow. Do these things and all will be well. Easy peasy, piece of cake. Okay then, let's take one of these virtues mentioned in the psalm, that you speak the truth from your heart. Now that's clear sailing when your friend's actions are obviously praiseworthy and right. But what if your friend does or says something you think might be a little on the slidey slope and you call him out about it? You might feel just and righteous speaking the truth to him, but what if you spoke too soon without knowing what was going on in your friend's life? It could turn out that you were wrong and cause embarrassment or hurt. And that same act of speaking the truth, which ordinarily would have been a virtuous act, turned out to be mean-spirited and unworthy. Sometimes it's prudent to hold off telling what you take to be the truth until you know what the whole truth is. The psalm also tells us not to slander or defame someone, and certainly we'd agree. We'd never make up some outrageous lie and attempt to tar and feather our friend with it. You like to think you are too well-bred for that. But there are subtle forms of defamation as well. Isn't that what you're doing when you say of someone that they talk like a professor, but when you add with a wink and a nod that they don't have the knowledge of one? That's kind of maligning or smearing, isn't it? Or the friend who loves to talk about the trip she's made and how she especially loves Vienna. All that music and the pastries, the wonder of it. And how well you wonder, does she really know the city? 
And knowing her love for Viennese cuisine, you casually ask her if she's ever had that beloved Viennese delicacy, a stew concocted of animal innards called Boischel. <laughs> then you wait for the answer or the embarrassed silence. Now that's a kind of slander too, isn't it? Even if it's so subtle, you might miss the pop barb that came with it. That list of virtues the psalmist recommends to us have to be used with great care. They're blunt instruments for doing good, but they can cause hurt when we use them without knowing what's going on in the life of the person we're talking to, or when we profess to abhor slandering someone while subtly defaming them at the same time. So it may be easy to read this Sunday's psalm, or sing it, but it's a whole lot more difficult to follow it in life's twists and turns. Well then, moving on to the gospel for today, a famous passage if there ever were one. Everyone knows this gospel, and certainly none of the much maligned Marthas can ever forget it. Those Marthas who see the myriad tasks to be performed that the rest of us who are more like Mary don't notice or choose not to notice. Those who stay after the reception to make sure the kitchen is cleaned up and the garbage is taken out, who sweep the floor and empty the trash cans. Those who, like the biblical Martha, cook dinner letting the Marys among us dream away the time or carry on philosophical conversations that are as substantial as mist. <laughs> to the Marthas among us, it would seem as if Jesus were criticizing all their hard work, their effort to keep the world in order. How could he not see the value of what we do, they wonder. And in fact, Jesus does see the value of their work. It's not the work but the toll it takes on them that worries him. For it's liable to produce a frantic busyness, a restless sense of so much to do and so little time, a feeling of distractedness and a reckless dispersion of energies and all that multitasking, and perhaps even a resentment that they're doing all the heavy lifting while the rest of us just coast along, not even aware how little help we are. And it's no surprise, then, that Marthas tend to look frazzled, anxious, exhausted, liable to discouragement and even depression. It's all this that Jesus wanted to point out. Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. And you need only read the paper to realize that distraction doesn't just come up in the Bible. Why, yesterday in the New York Times, there was a long article of, about what the author called our age of distract depression and of the millions on medication for these conditions. But with his gentle criticism to Martha, Jesus also gave her, gave her some advice. There is only one thing you need, he told her. And I wonder, 
Among the many things that remark can mean Jesus is telling Martha to lessen her distractibility and sense of rush by working on the task at hand without the anxiety of having in mind all the other ones that are out there waiting to be done, an infinity of them. Purity of heart is to will one thing, he's saying. One thing now, one thing later, one thing at a time. The Genesis passage presents us with another attitude to have in guiding our life. It's somewhat shocking to realize how little Abraham and Sarah knew about the God who uprooted them from their home in the Ur, in Ur of the Chaldees and brought them hundreds of miles west to the grazing lands of Canaan. It's not that God hadn't tried to tell Abraham, for God had made it quite clear to Abram that he would have offspring. Look at the stars in the night sky, Abram, as God points to them. You will have as many descendants as you see stars up there. But Abram didn't get it. And there was that dream Abram had in which he heard God telling him that his descendants would go down to Egypt in exile. That didn't register either. But how could Abram be ignorant of God's plan for him when God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many? Abram just thought how old he was and how old Sarah was. And the idea got fixed in his old brain that he was going to die without someone to carry on the line. So when the men who were visiting him assured Abraham that in a year's time he'd have a son, Abraham didn't believe them. Foolish Abraham. And foolish Sarah, because she laughed when she heard it. Had they never known that what we find impossible isn't to God. Now, let me leave Abraham and Sarah to themselves and turn to ourselves. If we're going to live lives that have God as its center, we have to acknowledge that what we think God can or can't do is usually widely off the mark. For with God, nothing is impossible because God is all possibility. If there were things that were impossible for God, then I think it'd be time to look for another God. The limits of our understanding are profound because they are limited by our knowledge and our hope and our unwillingness to imagine the unimaginable. But God has none of our limitations. So in our prayers, we must learn to act and pray boldly, recklessly. We must practice asking for what God can do, not what we think God can do. Mealy-mouthed prayers will never get us anywhere. I've never forgotten this prayer of a converted Brahmin, even though I've often lacked the courage and largeness of hope always to be able to pray it. In this prayer, it is God who is speaking. My child, God says, 
Speak to me as you would to your mother when she draws near you. Are there things for whom you would pray to me? Name them and ask much, ask much. I love generous souls who forget themselves for others. And are there things you would pray for yourself, blessings of body and soul? Ask me for them. I can give all things, and I always give when my blessings are needed to make you more holy. And come to me tomorrow. I will have more blessings for you. I've reached the passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians now, and I want to share with you a verse from it that has never failed to inspire me and at the same time to leave me in wonder. It too shows us a way to live, but more than that. It reveals to us how our lives can help to bring to completion what Jesus began during his life among us. The verse I have in mind is this one. It's Paul who's speaking. I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, for in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Everything that is needed to bring the church to its completion, to reveal it in all its splendor. Paul contributed his part through his many sufferings. You know him. All those times when he was beaten and the whippings, the dangers he suffered on the road, the hunger and thirst, and what pained him the most, betrayal from false friends. But that wasn't enough, not at all, to complete what was lacking in the sufferings Christ still had to endure for the sake of his body, the church. No, what was needed to be added were the sufferings, the strivings of Christians down through the centuries. And even that didn't do what was necessary. And now it's our turn to add our own sufferings to the completion of this celestial creation, which is the church. Our sufferings, everything that presses us down, cripples us with pain, all that makes us cry out in despair or doubt, these things will help bring about the glory of this great church we've been made a part of. What St. Paul is telling us is good news, gospel indeed. He's letting us know that our suffering is never wasted or pointless, and that more than that is essential for bringing creation to its final perfection. It's what the heavenly church is made of, suffering endured. Not all those glittering stones, the jasper, the topaz, the amethyst and gold, unless that is, what we suffer endure is transmuted by God through some divine alchemy into those beautiful jewels, those things rare and strange. And now let me sum things up. These readings show us ways to live our lives as Christians. We're to live ethically, treating our neighbor as we would like to be treated ourselves. We need to live with the knowledge that when it comes to what we need, there's nothing God can't do to make that happen. And knowing that, 
We can go through our daily lives without being spun about by feelings of distraction or frantic rush. And finally, we can live aware that even our sufferings are cherished by God and necessary for the completing of what is lacking in the building up of the Church of Christ and the bringing in of the Kingdom of God. Amen. <laughs>